Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Again, that is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Hi everybody, my name is Joel, I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church. If you're new or visiting, welcome to our church. If you're not new or visiting, welcome uh, to church. I'm glad you're here. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up, Genesis chapter 11. We're actually looking at verses 1 uh, to uh, 9. I told John the wrong Bible, my apologies. Um, but open up to Genesis 1 tonight, we'll go through it anyway. Um, in a second, we're going to um, get into it. But just so you're aware, after the sermon, we're going to have question time like we have every week during this uh, redemption, sorry, Roots of Redemption series. And the phone number will be up on the screen. So if you have any questions, please text them in and I'll do my best to answer them afterwards. But before I crack into it, I'm going to pray. So please bow your heads with me. Father God, we just want to thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I just pray as we come to it right now, Lord, that you just may um, just quiet our hearts and our minds. Lord, you may give us focus and clarity as we come to your word. And Lord, we pray that you change us by it, that you teach us, that you move us to worship your son. We thank you so much for the gift of your church and for this time right here. And we just pray that you'll be with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a, here's a question for you. Do you consider yourself to be a country person or a city person? Do you consider yourself to be a country person or a city person? For those of you who care, I'm 100% a city guy. Like it's obvious probably to a lot of you, like I speak really quickly. I like coffee, like good coffee from a cafe, not, you know, Nescafe, Nest Quick, you know, capsules. You know, I, I wear skinny jeans. I'm used to traffic and waiting for a car park. You know, I've always eaten supermarket food rather than, you know, the local food. You know, like I'm a dude who owns one flannelette shirt. And let me tell you, a good bakery to me is Baker's Delight. I am, I'm a city guy. Like I've never worked during harvest. I have no desire to work during harvest. Like it seems like hell. Who would want to do that? Like I grew up shooting bots on the computer, not shooting foxes on the farm. Like I am 100% a city guy. Now... Some of you are the same as me, you're a city person, uh, but a lot of you here are not. And over the last six months that I've been here, I've been getting to know a lot of you guys, and what seems to be the narrative for a lot of you is that you live out in the country, and then you move to Wollongong maybe to study or for a job. Um, and the reason why you don't move to Sydney is because, well, Sydney is the devil, <laughs> and you hate Sydney, like, it's a, it's, you hate cities, you hate large cities. And so you choose to, to study in Wollongong because you're like, oh, it's, it's not as big. It's you know, closer to the, the beach and it's Chico's. You're like, all right, I'm going to go there. And then a lot of you come here, you like it, and then you decide, actually, it's pretty good. So you stick around, you get a job, and you get converted. You see, a lot of you come here as country bumpkins and you stay here as city slickers. 
But unfortunately, some of you are still stubborn and still need to be convinced, which is why tonight we're going to talk about cities and what the Bible says about cities. Now, maybe like, why should we listen to a sermon from you, a dude who is a professing city guy? Well, I hate to break it to you, but you live in a city. If you live here in Wollongong, if you're not just visiting from the country, you live in the city. And in all seriousness as well, um, when we think of cities, we tend to think of large areas like, uh, sorry, cities of large population. You know, we tend to think of Sydney or, or Melbourne, like our capital cities of this country. We tend to think they're the cities. But in the Bible, the Hebrew word for city meant more like a human settlement that had a wall around it. So the reality is most of you country folk probably grew up in a town that the Bible would probably call a city. You see, in the Bible, a city is basically a town of a thousand or maybe two thousand people. It's not that big. So either way, if you're here at Wollongong Baptist Church tonight, it's probably because that you live at Wollongong, which is a city. It's Australia's tenth largest city, population around about three hundred thousand people. Or you come from the country and you probably come from a town which the Bible would call a city as well. And so for that reason, we need to understand what does the Bible teach about cities? And it teaches a lot. It teaches a lot. And so tonight we're going to look at the book of Genesis and we're then going to go from there. I'm going to go throughout scripture to a few different other passages. We're going to begin in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and we're going to end in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And what we're going to discover tonight is basically the Bible is a story of two cities. It's a story of two cities. You see, the exact, it's a story of the city of man and it's a story of the city of God. Now that exact language is not necessarily in the scriptures, but the concept is reigned throughout it. The first person that um, came up with this concept of this, the, stories about, uh, the Bible stories about two cities is a man called Augustine, a really smart guy who's uh, died a long time ago. And he's got a quote from one of his books, and he said this, and it should hopefully come up on the screen. Augustine said this, he said, I classify the human race into two branches. The one consists of those who live by human standard, the other of those who live according to God's will. I also call these two classes the two cities, speaking allegorically. By two cities, I mean two societies of human beings, one of which is predestined to reign with God for all eternity, the other doomed to undergo eternal punishment with the devil. Now, there's some intense language there, but I just want you to pick up on this concept that the Bible is a tale or a story of two cities. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And specifically, we're going to learn three things about cities. The first thing we're going to learn is that the city of man is doomed for destruction. The second point we're going to learn is that the city of God is designed for deliverance. And the third point we're going to talk about is how do we live in the city of man when we belong to the city of God? So three points, the city of man doomed for destruction, city of God is designed for deliverance and how to live in the city of man when you belong to the city of God. So that's the, that's the point structure to give you a heads up, but I don't want to give you another heads up as well. Tonight's sermon is going to be a little bit different to some of my other sermons. We're going to spend a lot of time flicking through the Bible. And so if you have one with you, keep it open, keep it in your hands. Uh, so we're going to spend a little time doing some work tonight, but I think it'd be really helpful and worthwhile. But before we get into our first point, which is the city about the city of man, let me give you some context from the book of Genesis about cities. That's really important. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, the first few uh, chapters of the book of Bible, we learn that humanity is created in God's image. And he places them in the Garden of Eden and he tells them, he blesses them. He says, be fruitful, go out and multiply and fill the earth. 
You see, God created us in His image to bear glory to Him, so His name may be glorified and lifted high. But what do we know? What happened? Adam and Eve didn't do that, rebelled against God, and they decided to glorify themselves instead. And what happened is they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And then their sons, Cain and Abel, um, then had a fight, if you want to put it those ways. More like Cain killed Abel. It wasn't really a fight. And then we see that Cain also gets kicked out of the outer area of the garden, if you want to put it in those words. And then what happened? Well, most of us are like, well, then he found a wife. And we're like, where did he find a wife from? And we freak out, which is fair enough. But if we ignore that conundrum, what happens in Genesis 4 is that Cain builds the first city of the Bible. He puts walls around his establishment. And then out of this city, we see culture begins. Out of this city, we see an economy begins with livestock trading. We see arts begin with music. And we see industry begin as tools are made. You see, in Genesis 4, we see that cities can be something that helps humanity flourish. But then tonight, as we're going to look at Genesis chapter 11, we're also going to see that cities can be a bad thing as well that helps humanity sin. So with that context in mind, let's look at our first point. The city of man is doomed for destruction. Now, what is the city of man? How can I define the city of man for you? Well, let me define it for you like this. The city of man is sinful humanity gathered together to rebel against God. The city of man is sinful humanity gathered together to rebel against God. And we see the first city of man here in our passage in chapter 11 of Genesis. Let me read to you verses 1 to 4 again. So you have your Bibles, keep them open. Genesis 11 will be on the screen. It says this, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. A few of you know this, but maybe you don't. Uh, before I was a pastor here at uh, WBC, I was a civil engineer. I mainly dealt with building roads and bridges, but it also meant I studied how to build buildings. And so I find buildings really interesting, really fascinating. Like, I, I like the concept of designing them and, and building them. And I don't think I'm the only person that finds big buildings fascinating. You know, I think most of us here find them pretty fascinating. I think that's why most city has a tourist attraction where you can go to the topest tower in that city and look over the city or maybe jump off the tower or different things. I don't know. Now, we're all aware as well of how nations, they play this game, don't they? Where if they want to be known, like if a nation wants to be put on the map, what do they do? They build a big tower. It's been happening throughout the ages and it will continue to happen I looked it up this week, you know, some procrastination for sermon writing. You know, the tallest tower at the moment is in, I think it's um, United, Arab, uh, United Arab Emirates. It's about 800 meters tall. The thing is huge. And it puts that country on the map. You see, this is normal for humanity to build cities and towers. But how do we know that this city and this tower was built in, re- I guess, rebellion against God? Well, to understand this, you really need to understand the context of Genesis and what is going on here. You see, after the flood, in chapter 9, verse 1, God said to Noah, basically what he said to Adam and Eve. He said to him, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Now, be fruitful. 
Now, Noah interprets that a bit differently to what most people would. Instead of being fruitful, he, he produces fruit. He produces some grapes and then some wine. And then he fills the earth with his nakedness. So he just doesn't really get the, the motive of what God's trying to say here. But his sons seem to. You see, we read Genesis 10, which Mark covered last week, the, the table of nations. And we learn about how um, Noah's sons I guess, spread and filled the earth. And we think, man, okay, these guys, they're better than their dad. These guys, these guys are legends. They, they fulfilled what God called them to do. But, but, but hang on a minute. We take note, though, of how in verse 5 it, it mentions multiple languages. And in verse 20 and verse 31. And then all of a sudden we get to chapter 11 of Genesis and we look at verse 1 and it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And, and we're thinking, what's going on here? We just saw those multiple languages. And we think, who wrote this book? Like, this guy doesn't know how to write a story. But then we think, oh, wait a minute. Maybe these chapters are not in chronological order. And that's exactly right. That's what's going on here. You see, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, explain how Genesis 10 came about. You see, Noah's sons didn't necessarily fulfill God's command. And Genesis 11 here explains to us how the people were scattered throughout the land. You see, instead of scattering for God's name, these people gathered for their own name. Look at verse 4 again with me. It says, You see, this is Noah's descendants. They came together and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered, which is what God wanted them to do, over the face of the whole earth. You see, Noah's descendants, they gather together to rebel against God rather than scattering to bring glory to God. You see, instead of trying to make God's name famous, they try to make their own name famous. They gather to build a tower for their own fame. This is an example of the city of man, an example of a sinful humanity gathered together to rebel against God. And what happens? Well, we'll look at verse 5 with me. I love this. In verse 5, it says this. It says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the people uh, were building. I, I, I love this verse. Like, you know, this tower, it's impressive. You know, they think it reaches the heavens. You know, in the Discovery Channel, they're impressed. You know, they're out there filming for their, their next show, you know, skyscrapers. And then all of a sudden, you know, God has to descend. He, has to, he needs to come down from where he is just so he can see the tower. Like it's so far from God that he can't even see it. You know, it's, it's almost like you can imagine, you know, God is there and he's like, what? You build an impressive tower? He's like, where is oh, Oh, it's down there. Like, he's not impressed. Now, just so we're clear, the, the, the point of this language, it's, it's being poetic. It's not trying to teach us that God is high in the heavens and that he's far away from us. Instead, it's trying to tell us that this tower, this city, is pathetic. But more than being a pathetic city and tower, it's a sinful city and tower. You see, look at verses 6 to 7. The Lord said this. He said, if... As one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this. Then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they'll not understand each other. You see, here God intervenes and he judges their sin and their rebellion. But more than that, he also prevents more sin from coming as well. You see, as one people with one language, this group gathered together they would be able to rebel in many like, worse ways and just building a tower. And God knew that. 
this, this gathered group will continue to scheme together, plan together, and do wicked beyond our imagination. And so God judges these guys because of their sin, but he also judges them to prevent them from sinning more. Which just shows to us the sort of God that we worship. How he's even gracious in judgment. Just like how he was with Adam and Eve. And how he kicked them out of the garden before they could eat from the tree of life and be permanently sinful. And so knowing this, look at verse 8 and what happens. In verse 8 and 9, so we see, So the Lord scattered them from there over the earth. They stopped building the city. And that is why it is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. After seeing this city of man, the city of man that is built for rebellion, in rebellion, God judges it. And God scatters the people across the earth, just like he wanted them to do in the first place. You see, in this, in this, in this story, what we see is that the city of man is destroyed, that it's doomed for destruction. This story teaches us from the very beginning that a city that comes together to rebel against God will be destroyed. You see, this story, though, it's not just about this one city, though. It's about all cities that are like this, that are built to rebel against God. How do I know this? Well, this city, this city of Babel, ends up becoming a symbolic symbol of the judgment that is to come in the Bible. You see, later in history, this city of Babel was resurrected into the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon that gave birth to the Babylonian Empire, an empire which in 589 B.C., invaded Jerusalem and destroyed God's temple. The city of Babylon was a wicked city and it was eventually destroyed by the Greeks around about 300 BC. And since then, it's been a pile of rubble. But nevertheless, the Bible continues to talk about the city of Babylon, even though it doesn't even exist anymore. You see, in Revelation 18, the writer John, he talks about this wicked city of Babylon and he talks about how it is doomed for destruction how it symbolically represents evil in the city of man. So from Genesis chapter 11, we learn about the city of man. And we learn how it is doomed for destruction when people gather together to rebel against God. But before we move on to our second point, I think it's important that we feel the weight of this point. See, I think it's important to remember that, yes, our God is a God of love, but he's also a God of holiness. He's a God that judges sin. He's a God that judges people who rebel against him, that cities that rebel against him. You see, the unfortunate truth is that you and I, we're more like these builders than we care to admit. You and I are more like these builders in that we try and live a life for our own fame and our own name, rather than for the God of the universe. We may not do it as obvious as them, but we still do it. And so it's important that we feel the weight of this passage and understand that God judges sin. We take heed of the warning that the city of man is doomed for destruction. The city of man is doomed for destruction. Point number one. Point number two, though. Let's have a look at the city of God, which is designed for deliverance. The city of God, which is designed for deliverance. Now, if the city of man is, I guess, humanity gathered together to rebel against God, then the city of God is gathered humanity that comes together to glorify God and worship Him. Let me repeat that, that the city of God is saved humanity gathered together to glorify God. Now, to learn about the city of God, unfortunately, it's not here in Genesis 11, so we need to skip out of Genesis 11 and go to other places in the Scriptures. 
And this is where it's going to get some hard work. I want us to go through four different passages throughout the Scriptures to help you see how the city of God is a theme in the Scriptures. And the first one we're going to go to is actually in the next chapter, in chapter 12 of Genesis, verses 1 to 3. This is basically almost immediately after the Tower of Babel. So let me read to you. It should also come up on the screen. Verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, and he just lived just outside of Babel, by the way, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I'll show you, and I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and have a curse of you, I'll curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. If Genesis 11 is about the city of man, Genesis 12 is the beginning of the city of God. That's what we see here is that God picks one man to make his name famous through. Abraham, who becomes the father of Isaac, and then Isaac becomes the father of Jacob. Jacob becomes the father of 12 sons. Those 12 sons then grow into the nation of Israel. And then this nation of Israel becomes a kingdom when they get a king such as Saul and King David. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God fulfills this important promise to Abraham here in verses 1 to 3. You see, God gives Abraham this land, and more specifically, he gives him the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which means city of peace. Jerusalem, which is God's city. The city that was to be a light to all nations. The city where God's temple was, where God dwelt. You see, what's interesting is basically half the Bible, from Genesis to the book of Psalms, God is setting up his city. He's setting up Jerusalem. A place where his saved people can gather together to glorify him. That's pretty much the storyline for half the Bible. And when you get to Psalms, you can think, okay, all is looking good. Like Jerusalem, that's the city of God. That's where people are going to gather together. And that's where they're going to worship him for eternity. But then this city of Jerusalem changes from being the city of God to being the city of man like Babel. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel 36, verse 17 to 20. Once again, it'll come up on the screen. Ezekiel 36, 17 to 20. Let me read this out to you as we see this shift occurring. It says this, verse 17, Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleansiness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath, that's God's anger, on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them amongst the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And whenever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. You see, like the, the city of Babel, the people of Babel, the people of Jerusalem started to sin. They started to profound God's name rather than glorify God's name. And what did God do? He judged them and he scattered them into exile, just like he did here in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. You see, before this point in the Bible, we can think that the city of God is synonymous with Jerusalem, with, with the physical city in Israel. But then when we come to this part of Scripture, we realize that a shift occurs. And that the physical city of Jerusalem is not necessarily the city of God. Matter of fact, the, the city of Jerusalem, like I said before, got destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And so as readers of the Bible, you can think, okay, well, if Jerusalem is not the city of God, well then what is? Is there such thing as the city of God? Well, then you have to turn to the New Testament. 
And if you turn with me to John 11, chapter, uh, John 11, 49 to 52, where we'll learn more about the city of God. Let me read to you verse 49 of John 11. It says this, this is John. He said, then one of them named um, Sophia, sorry, who was a high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but get this, but also the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Do you see what's going on here? You see, Jesus did not only die for the nation of Israel, but he also died for the scattered children of God. You see, church, it's important that we see in the Old Testament, God judges people by scattering them. But in the New Testament, he saves them by gathering them. Like, think about it. What is the church? The church is a gathering. Like, the the word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia in the Greek, and that just means gathering. You see, the city of God is saved humanity, gathered together to glorify God. And ultimately, the city of God is the church. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5.14, how he says that the church is to be the light of the world, to be the city on a hill. The city of God, which is designed for deliverance, the church is the city of God, where saved humanity gathers together to glorify him. But not only that, one day the church will live in a physical city of God once more. In our final passage, Revelation 21, verse 2, let me read this out to you. As John says this, the writer of Revelation, when he talks about another city, and this time it's not Babylon, but it's Jerusalem. He said this, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You see, in the scriptures, just like the city of Babylon is symbolic for wickedness and evil, the city of Jerusalem is symbolic for God's people as they gather together to praise God. You see, point number two, the city of God, it's designed for deliverance. You see, the church is God's city, but then also one day we will be in God's ultimate city for eternity, the new Jerusalem. So, what does the Bible teach us about cities? It teaches us a tale of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. The question is, which city do we belong to? Do we belong to the city of man or we belong to the city of God? In your life, are you living for God's glory or are you living for your own? Are you being like these builders or are you seeking to lift up God's name and his fame? Maybe some of you are realizing that you're not necessarily living for God and you like to be, belong to the city of God. And you're wondering, how do you enter such a city? Well, let me tell you. As most of you know, I play basketball on a Monday nights uh, just for fun with a random bunch of guys. We're called We Got Buckets. We, it's a lie. We do not have buckets. Uh, we went on, had a winning streak of one game, and um, that's it. That's our winning streak. It's game over. Now, um, one of my favorite basketball players is a guy called Kevin Durant. Um, he's six foot nine, I think. He's a monster, and he's just one of the best basketballers in the world, hands down. Um, and I like him because he's a good player, but also I like him because of a story that I heard about him. 
You see, one chilly evening in Oklahoma, that's where Kevin Durant lives, there was an ordinary flag NFL football game occurring. Now, that's sort of like Oz tag to us Aussies. And this ordinary game was on a university campus, maybe similar to like Wollongong Uni, and it was between two social university teams playing that night. And while these two university teams were getting ready to play one another, this, all of a sudden this six foot eight Kevin Durant walks up onto the field and asks for, I guess, a flag or a tag so he could play in the game. Everyone's like blown away. You see, what happened a few hours earlier is that a guy on Twitter just messaged Kevin Durant and just like dared him to come down and play flag football with them. And he's like, yeah, sure, no worries, why not? And so this guy, this NBA superstar, whose knees are literally worth millions of dollars, this great player, goes and plays this casual football game with a bunch of random guys at a random field. You know, on that evening, Kevin Durant descended from greatness just to go be with, to be honest, nobodies. And the nobodies loved it. Now, why am I telling you this story? Well, it's important that you understand, in the Tower of Babel, God descends down to this sinful humanity and he judges them. But later on in the scriptures, in the Bible, God descends down to humanity once again, but instead of judging them, he takes their judgment. Jesus, who's more impressive than Kevin Durant, descends down to earth to save us. He comes to God's city, Jerusalem, but it's not the city of God, it's the city of man, and they crucify him outside the walls so that anyone and everyone can belong to the city of God through faith in Jesus' blood and what he did at the cross. You see, unlike the Tower of Babel builders, unlike you and I, Jesus wasn't about his name and his fame, he's about his father's name and his father's glory. He was able to humble himself and come down to us. In a great passage in Philippians 2 verse 6, we'll come up on the screen, it says this about Jesus. It says, being in the very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you want to enter the city of God, you need to have faith in Jesus, the one who descended down, not to judge us, but to take our judgment for us. So, what does the Bible teach us? It teaches us about the city of man and the city of God. The city of man is doomed for destruction, but the city of God is designed for deliverance for those who put their faith in Jesus, our Savior. But let's get a bit practical to end here. How do we as a church live in what is the city of man, to be honest with you, a city that rebels against God when we belong to the city of God. Well, there's so much here to say, like literally so much, but instead I just want to give us two tips to finish here. The first tip is this, we're to love our city. We are to love our city. You see, as Christians who live in this city of man and we await the final city of God, we are always tempted to fall into one of two errors. We're tempted to fall into separatism or syncretism. What do I mean by that? Well, we're always tempted to fall into separatism. In other words, we're tempted to leave this city rather than live in this city and love this city. We're tempted to be judgmental of this city and create exclusive communities where people who don't know Jesus are unwelcomed and unwanted. But on top of this temptation to become separatists, we also are tempted to become syncretists. Syncretists who become like the city rather than love this city. 
just how like an iPhone is synced to iTunes. You see, syncretists become synced with the culture and the city around them. As followers of Jesus who live in this city, awaiting the final city, we're tempted to fall into these two errors. And yet Jesus told his followers, he said, to be in the world but not of the world. He said to be a city on the hill, to love the city, to care for the people of the city, even when the city hates you and wants nothing to do with you. Church, I, I love this city. I love this city. I went to Sydney earlier today, and I love Sydney as well, but I was just like, oh man, this city sucks in comparison to Wollongong. Like, this, like Wollongong is the bomb. I love this city. Yeah, the reality is this city will hate us as a church and as Christians. The reality is the city will persecute us because of our view that the Bible is God's word. The city will persecute us because of our view on marriage, because of our view on abortion and much more. But nevertheless, Jesus tells us to expect such persecution and to love this city. And so let me ask you and me, do we love this city of Wollongong? Do we weep for this city like God weeps for this city, that people will come to know him? Do we pray for this city and do we care about it? Or are we embarrassed by it? Now maybe you're wondering, Joel, how do, how do we tangibly love the city how do we love a city that is broken and in need of so much love? Well, to be straight, the number one solution is tell people about Jesus. Is tell people about Jesus. Look, like the re- reality is, as I look around the room here, like no offense to any of you, but I don't see any arrows. I don't see any Batmans. I don't see any daredevils in this room. You see, none of us here are the hero, but Jesus is. And so he's the one that we want to talk about. He's the one that we want to point people to. Because he's the one who can change people and save people and help people more than we can. Now, does this mean that we don't physically help our city? That we just don't help out the poor, help out those who are needy around us? Well, no. Of course we do. But at the same time, we need to keep in mind that all we can do is limited. That we can only, the best thing we can do is point people to Jesus as we seek towards loving those who are in our proximity. Let's love this city. I've asked Beth Klein to take on the role of gospel-centered service. And part of that role is her thinking about how can we serve the church as well as our community. And so the next mu- few months, she's going to be thinking through how can we love our city more. And I'd love it if you'd be praying and thinking through how can you love your city more? How can you love your neighbors more? How can you love people you work with more and care for this city like God cares for this city? Tip number one, love the city. Tip number two, though, look forward to the city to come. Look forward to the city to come. The book of Hebrews, chapter 14, verse 13, the writer reminds us to look forward to the city to come. You see, as Christians who live in this city, and it's a great city, it's an amazing city, but we need to remind ourselves that it's flawed, that it's broken, and we need to look forward to the city to come. A city that will be greater than Wollongong, a city that will have better coffee than sifters, better burgers than chicos, the new Jerusalem, a city where God's people will gather together to praise our great God, our great God who loved us even when we didn't love him, our great God who descended down to take the judgment that we deserved. This is tip number two we can never forget. Let's look forward to the city to come. Look forward to the city to come. So what does the Bible teach us about cities? There's so much more I could have talked about tonight. 
But the things I wanted to point out to you is that the Bible is a tale of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. The city of man is doomed for destruction, but the city of God is designed for deliverance. May we love this city, but may we also look forward to the city to come. Let me pray to close. Father God, we are thankful for the God that you are. Lord, we think of the book of Jonah and we think about how the, the stubborn Jonah didn't want to go to the city of Nineveh, to the city of which is the capital city of the Babylonians, Lord. I mean, the Syrians, sorry. And he, he didn't want to go to that city because of how wicked and, and sinful. And yet you told Jonah that you love that city despite the wickedness of that city. As we look throughout the scriptures, Lord, we see that you are a God who loves people, that you are a God who wants to see cities transformed for Christ. And Lord, we long for the day where we'll be in the new Jerusalem, the new city. Father, we will praise you as your gathered people. Lord, we do pray that you give us wisdom, that you help us as a church to love this city, to know that we can't do everything, but Lord, at the same time that we can do something. Lord, we pray that you be working through us, guide us by your spirit and your word, and help us to point people to Jesus, the ultimate hero and savior who can change people's lives. We look forward to the city to come, Lord, and praising your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.